Thank you for joining us in the Feed the Ball Salon, the place for deep discussions into the art and science, and sometimes the silliness of golf course design. I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest, and my co-host is Jim Urbina, golf course builder and the most ubiquitous and beloved man in golf, a designer who knows everyone everywhere. This is kind of a special edition because we're going to focus on one topic, bunkers. And joining us for that discussion is another man who knows everyone everywhere, Ron Witten, my esteemed predecessor as architecture editor at Golf Digest from 1985 to 2020, who is also a historian, author, and golf course designer in his own right. He's now our architecture editor emeritus, and you can listen to my original podcast with him from 2018 on Feed the Ball episode 27. You can find that at feedtheball.com. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else that you get your audio pleasures. For that matter, you can listen to all the past Feed the Ball episodes at any of those places, including previous salons you may have missed, and also my original podcast with Jim Rubina from 2019. That's episode 61. These are all free of charge to you. Ron was also recently a guest, along with architect David Hookstra, on the Green Awning podcast with Jay Gianetto and David Icorn from Elmwood Country Club in Iowa. I'll link that in the show notes, and I absolutely recommend you listen to that as well. It's really worth your time. But, bunkering. Many golfers view bunkers merely as annoyances and things to avoid, and that is partially their function. But architects use bunkers for more than just punishment. They incorporate them to set up strategies, whole concepts, aesthetic composition, and add character and definition to courses, perhaps more than any other element in golf design. Bunkers are and always have been fundamental to the art and science of architecture, going back to the first attempts of man to create courses away from the natural linksland. On that note, Jim Urbina wrote a beautifully on-point and succinct piece in defense of bunkers a few years ago for Lynx Magazine titled Five Myths About Bunkers. That's also linked in the show notes, and I encourage you to give it a look. There's a term you'll hear in this podcast in a quote from Harry Colt that to me expresses the purpose and effect of good bunkering as much as any other. Vitality. Bunkers add vitality to a design, whether sprinkled across the landscape to stimulate the senses, added purposefully to break up what Max Baer called the line of instinct, the direct and intuitive route to the hole, in order to make golfers calculate alternative tactics and find what Baer called the line of charm, to provide opportunities of thrilling conquest should golfers skirt or clear them, and to direct the player's eye toward other features for the purposes of subterfuge, guidance, or temptation. Yet within these various purposes lie countless other considerations and ramifications, including their size, shape, style, and upkeep, or their visibility, types of sand, expense, and drainage. Are bunker liners necessary or a boondoggle upsell? How many bunkers are necessary to be effective? And are we headed toward a future of bunkerless design? These are some of the issues Jim, Ron, and I will be discussing. Alistair McKenzie wrote that he thought there were generally far too many bunkers on golf courses. Augusta National had just 22 when it opened, though now it has more than twice that many. Courses are made more interesting, he said, through the tilt of the greens and the character of the undulations. I don't disagree with him, but I also find that extravagantly bunkered courses can be equally interesting, engaging, and even in some cases inspiring. I can't fathom how dull golf would be without compelling bunkers, whether a few or a great many. I wait for someone to explain how the National Golf Links of America would be better with less than the 300-plus bunkers it lays out before us. Though I think I could make the case that removing up to half the so-called bunkers at Whistling Straits would not diminish it in any way. 
That's the complexity and intrigue of bunkers, bunker character, and bunker placement. And it's what Urbina, Witten, and every other designer and superintendent contemplates and reasons with on every site they work. Let's now hear more of their thoughts. On the topic of bunkers, here's me, Jim Urbina, and Ron Witten. You know, Derek, people always talk about bunkers and hazard and the things that they'd like about them and they don't like about them. But if I could talk one thing before we get started, it's a quote from a book that I appreciate and, and one that I started to get my ideas about what's the good and bad, the evil, the, the positives and negatives of bunkers. And this is from HF Colt, Colt, if you don't mind. I'd like to hear it. And I quote, players are beginning to see how easy it is to place a bunker at correct distances. But few perhaps realize how difficult it is to arrange for the natural features to provide the fullest possible extent necessary for the excitement for the course and to supplement these features without destroying the natural beauty of the site. When this has been accomplished, the necessary vitality will have been gained without which the experienced architect will obtain no real satisfaction. That is the real test of a golf course. Is it going to live or not? Does it provide a test for the game? Is there more that's necessary? The bunkers may be placed correctly. The putting green may be true. The critical and experienced player will obtain the lies perfect and yet no really satisfying experience is obtained. There can be no true and lasting success for such a creation. It will die in a course of a year. An architect's earnest hope is, without doubt, that his course will have the necessary vitality to resist possible adverse criticism and will endure as a lasting record of his craft and his love for his work, end quote, H.S. Colt. You can see that architects care, architects think about what they're doing when they're placing hazards, but we really live and die in so many words, whether the golf course is appreciated or people find it to be too difficult or too easy. That is the, that is the, the quest for strategy, the quest for the creation, the quest for good greens, good tees, good, good fairways. We, we want that natural, that, that excitement, that blends the golf course into its natural surroundings. But then we've just carried it way farther than anybody could ever imagine when we start to talk about hazards and bunkers and, and their placement and how they should look and how they should play. And, and that's when you go down the rabbit hole. You know, what strikes me when I heard that is, and I'm not sure exactly what year Colt wrote that, but they weren't that far removed from the previous era of design when bunkers were not really placed strategically, but they were placed to enforce punishment on poor shots. And uh, the designers of that era, previous era, would, you know, drape a cop bunker across the fairway at a certain distance, whatever the, the driving distance was, that was <laughs> just under what they were capable of carrying in most cases. So, this the the way that Colt writes there is is really 
kind of a new way of thinking in that era about how to really arrange hazards and think of a golf course more holistically and naturally than simply as a, a series of obstacles to to jump over. So that was kind of a, a new a new way of thinking, breaking new ground there, and it's maybe one of his better expressions of early true golf course architecture in the early 1900s, the first couple decades of the 1900s. And the thing about for me is that he was beginning to discuss where they placed them instead of where they randomly happened, like at St. Andrews and the golf courses of the links of the British Isles. They were talking about placing them. Uh, They were talking about would they fit into the natural ground and what was that distance that it needed to be. And that's the dilemma of modern architecture is that the game is so fast evolving with technology where where do you put those bunkers today and will they be obsolete for tomorrow or as i once told a greens committee chairman in chicago there's a bunker for every player out there maybe not that one maybe that one is not for you Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that goes back to Colton, right? You know, just this, he's talking about it. You're talking about it. You're still dealing with that. Every generation of architect has, you know, had to deal with that problem and stressed about it and the the distances and worrying about golf courses becoming obsolete. But uh, let me pause right here. We're lucky to have Ron Witten with us uh, on this podcast, Jim. We're really excited to have him. So, uh, Ron, I'm going to uh, bring you in right now and, and turn it over to you. What do you think when you hear those thoughts of going back to Harry Colt and, and how, you know, they're, the architects of that generation, their, you know, 19-teens, 1920s, were having to, to really rationalize bunker placement and think about the, the diverse range of people who are playing the game and, and how uh, different abilities work their way around a golf course. And things haven't really changed that much. That's still kind of the, one of the fundamental elements of designing a good golf course. Derek, I want to say hi, Jim. Hi. Long time hi, Ron. Listener, how you? First time caller. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great to have you, Rod. <laughs> what what Jin described and what I've seen in my research over the years that beginning, oh, I'd say in the early 19 teens, and then especially in the early 20s, there was a lot of talk about scientific placement of bunkers. Uh, and that was a reaction to the steeplechase architecture that you were talking about, Derek. And for a long, long time, you know, bunkers were were to be placed uh, either to pose strategies or to trap certain level of golfers without punishing other golfers and that sort of thing. And then it wasn't until uh, I want to say Tom Doak came along that that he wrote. This was early in his career that you know there's one thing about scientific bunkering that that you're not going to catch every kind of golfer, but you know, you're going to catch a certain kind of golfer. You're going to catch a certain, and he, he felt the random bunkering uh, mixed it up more so that me as a high handicapper has to face an actual bunker off a tee on some holes where Derek, you as a low handicap golfer may face a, a different situation on other holes. And the more variety there is in the bunkering, the more Tom Doak thought that uh, it was, more holistic or more natural than the scientific bunkering that, you know, Robert Trent Jones did, or even Pete Dye did. It goes to a good point. When you try to plan for everything, you, you end up with the, I mean, you could potentially end up with a golf course with, 
200, 300 bunkers. You know, if you're trying to plan out every single shot and, and, and every, every contingency and have a plan for it, um, which is what this, the scientific approach would, would sort of be, is to try to account for everything. Now you're working back off different tees. You're thinking about the, the, the lady player, the male player, the high handicap, low handicap. Jim, does it get to the, a point when it's just too much? And what's Ron saying is, you know, and he, and is, is a better approach. And that even goes back to, you know, the earliest golf courses where nothing was planned. You know, the, the reason the game was popularized in the first place and people were attracted to it is because it was just a field. You went out and, and smacked whatever ball you had around. And, you know, if there were sand pits and winds and uh, dunes and things you had to hit over, that just added to the excitement. You never knew what you were going to get and nothing was planned. Isn't that sort of equally attractive as to, to, to try to figure out you know, every situation and, and have a, have a, a plan of action for where every ball might potentially end up. Well, it's funny that uh, the scientific approach and the random approach are, are, as Ron said, or I could concur are completely opposite. What really fascinated me about uh, an architect who really only worked in the Northeast uh, who went by the name of Devereaux Emmett he started to do what I call trench bunkering. And this bunkering would be parallel to the fairways. And they would run for long distances, sometimes uh, 50, 60, 70 yards. And these trench bunkers would, would be mowed right next to the fairway, would be built right next to the fairways. So if you hit your fairway uh, drive 180, you could be in this left trench bunker or 190 or 210 or 220 or 230. So it took out that scientific notion. And lo and behold, Mr. Pete Dye comes along and starts building these same linear bunkers, TPC Sawgrass, PGA West. And he starts to put in these very long sand bunkers, waste areas, he called them. And they allowed for someone, no matter their, their, their capability, to hit into these strategic bunkers that bordered fairways. So Pete and Devereaux Emmett, I believe, took the bunkering to a new level so that it encompasses all levels of players along a linear path, what I call the X factor. Devereaux Emmett, early eight, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, took out that scientific approach. Pete Dye continued that with his long linear lines. So it was a blend of scientific and random. I could go either way on it. I like the random more often like St. Andrews but I appreciate what Devereaux Emmett and Pete Dye were doing with their long linear trench bunkers. You mentioned, you mentioned I'm sorry, you mentioned the old course of St. Andrews, Jim, and I think it was Brian Silva who, who wrote that, you know, the genius of, of the old course was that the, the bunkering evolved with generations of golfers, you know, the, the short, everyone was a short hitter with the, with the gutter percha and they, they end up, hitting the same spot and digging these same sort of holes and then animals come along and carve out the holes and all this stuff. And, and the next generation, the, the, the bunkering would move where they would, would end up. And for a long time, when you played St. Andrews, there was a set of bunkers, depending on, on what tee you hit and, and, and what distances you hit, there were a set of bunkers in play for you. And, uh, and, and that's what made it such an interesting championship golf course, because um, until Tiger Woods came along and won a, uh, an open there without ever hitting in a bunker in four rounds, uh, there was always some bunker in play 
on some hole for different uh, lengths of, of, of rise and that sort of thing. Uh, and, and that was the genius of that random. It was random and yet it was there was a principle behind it because it was it it, it was a product of evolution and you know that's that's the story you hear at oakmont that that uh, phones would go out and wherever a person would hit a ball he'd put a flag and say build a bunker here uh, i can tell you that bob lang did the same thing at aaron hills early in its a uh, its operation in the in in 2007, 2008, uh, he added a hundred bunkers just by running out and flagging wherever he saw a person hit a ball. Yeah. That's how Oakhurst ended up with over allegedly over 300 bunkers at one point. <laughs> yeah. One for every day of the and, week. And, and that's also though, you know, like you hear the architects of the 1920s often did that. They would build a golf course and not install bunkers until they learned where players were hitting the ball. So it's, there's a, there's something to that. It's just it can obviously be overdone if you're doing it to to extract uh, blood from players who are playing well or hitting it, you know, in places that take advantage of the golf course. Do, do either one of you know what year approximately the last bunker was added to the old course? Like when did that process of of evolution bunker evolution end? They might need to start Great adding question. some more at this point. I'd have to I'd have to refer to Scott McPherson's book, which is which is the comprehensive history of the evolution of uh, of St. Andrews. Um, and I agree. I, I, I wouldn't know that either. I would go and research Scott McPherson's book. But I can tell you what I think has happened is that the randomness of St. Andrews. Uh, because of the technology and the ball going farther and farther, what would have appeared to be the second shot bunkering for the game of the of that era is now become the first shot bunkering of this era. And so I don't know that you need to add any more random bunkers at St. Andrews. You just let technology catcher you let technology catch up with the second and third shot plans of the golden age architects. It's genius. Uh, that's why I enjoy restoring Alistair McKenzie designs because his second shot bunkers are really first shot bunkers of the modern technology. Jim, this, this topic has been on your mind. What brought this to the forefront of your mind? What motivated you? Is there something that's going on in your, in your head that's, that's uh, caused you to really uh, turn a, another eye toward bunkering and the concept of it? I was approached about writing the article because I, because I was asked, what do you see that, uh, what has evolved in the way bunkers are presented today as, as compared to the to the to the golden age designs and even links golf and i realized restoring bunkers restoring golden age designs working on golf courses that were built in the 1890s and early 1900s that technology had caught up with them again a different kind of technology a, a technology that required sands that were so expensive and bunker liners that kept that sand that expensive sand so clean and and everything had to be perfect and and superintendents were worried about uh members being unhappy with would not having a perfect lie and i just started to realize that what had evolved from uh, as ron said a random bunker a sand pit at st andrews had now become one of the most costly things in golf architecture i just thought that we had lost our way and i wanted to point out where where bunkers had came from 
and what their original purpose was. So just to just to continue on that thought, so where you are right now is is the the concept of the the high end low maintenance bunker is is a distraction. Are we heading down a wrong path that way? This is a good time to bring in a question from Twitter. A buddy of mine, David Marcuselli, asked this question, and this this touches on the concept of liners. He said, every project I work on seems to be calling for some version of a wildly expensive bunker liner. Can Jim provide a few examples of successful projects of his where minimal expenses were spent on bunker liners? Or maybe even maybe no liners at all, but but maybe highlight the soil conditions and explain why why these decisions are made. Jim, what what about bunker liners? Where do you stand on those? Well, this conversation started at a golf course in, in California, Northern California, between me and the superintendent at Pasa Tempo Golf Club. When I was restoring the the Barranca bunkers on the tenth hole at Pasa Tempo, when I showed. Uh, the superintendent, how steep the slope was going to be, he was concerned that in winter rains, the sand would wash away from there. And I couldn't disagree with him uh, that the sand would possibly wash away from the steep slope that Mackenzie and Robert Hunter had built. So his suggestion was to put in a fabric that would hold the sand up on the steep slope, even in the rain events. And that way he could reduce the amount of labor it would cost to rake the sand back up on the slopes. And I understood that, that my, my job was to recreate the bunker to the best of my ability, how McKenzie had, had built it, had, how Robert Hunter had laid it out. Uh, and when we unearthed the original bunker slope, we could see the sand sitting on there. So I knew how steep the slope was. So I had to be sympathetic to the superintendent and the labor cost to keep the sand on the faces. So the material that he had chosen to hold the sand in place worked. And even in big rain events, the sand stayed up there, reducing labor costs. So I understood where it started and why its purpose was for, for the labor savings. Because members didn't want to come out the next day after a heavy rain and be inconvenienced by labor and, and the grounds crew raking sand. They wanted to play instantly. That's how life is now today. We want to play instantly. As a, as a guy who spent his college career throwing sand up the faces of the country club of Lincoln, Nebraska's bunkers every single morning because overnight irrigation would wash the sand down the slopes. I can tell you that uh, uh, bunker liners are a necessary expense to any course renovation. If you're, if you're going to make, if you want to flash the sand, if you want to be able to have sand visible. You either have a steep angle repose in a smaller bunker, or you have a very long bunker where you can have a gentle, more gentle angle of repose, but then you suddenly pose 40-yard, 50-yard bunker shots to the average golfer, which is not ideal either. I guess it comes down to, obviously, the economics. At what point do you recoup the cost of the bunker liner? Uh, versus the labor that you spend and it would depend i guess every golf course is different right you have some golf courses that have right. a you know budget's not really an object so you know the installation of line of whatever liner you're using is is immaterial it's just part of the cost or if you have a very few bunkers on the golf course that might work too but at some point in the in the real world what you're finding are are courses that are being remodeled and renovated are reducing the number of bunkers or reducing the size of the bunkers 
to 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 save a little bit of the cost on that liner, and and you can flash that sand a little more and have the same dramatic effect with fewer bunkers. Um, so you know, in the in the overall scheme of things, you're spending money up front, but you're saving money in the long term in terms of um, that hand, all expensive yeah. hand maintenance. But Jim, it's, I'm, what I get from you is is that you would prefer not to use a liner. Is that correct? Well, here's my dilemma. The art of architecture and the science of architecture. I struggle with that every day. I want the art to be as, as pure and as, as, as presentable as the golden age architects wanted it to be. But I have to be sympathetic to the science that goes into it. And as Ron just explained, the angle of repose, that means how steep that slope can be before the sand starts to slough off. So how do I blend art with science? How do I get the features that were there at one time put back into place with the technologies of today? I have old photos at Pasa Tempo of Alistair McKenzie standing in a bunker, hitting a bunker shot, and if you look closely over out to the outer edge of the bunker, you could see that the bunker was washed out. Now, <laughs> could you imagine an architect today standing in a bunker, taking a photo of his work and having the bunker sand washed out? Not going to happen. But you see how the presentation in the golden age versus what it is today, it has to look good. People want it to look good. If you're going to spend money doing it, it should look good. So that's the that's the tough part of art and science. The other the other aspect that we've got to consider is if there's any sort of organic in that sand at all, um, stuff is going to grow in it. And so you uh, you saw a lot of superintendents, especially in the, you know in the fifties and sixties and seventies, would remove the sand, put in a plastic liner to keep keep weeds from coming up from underneath. And, and then throwing sand on it. And of course, those plastic liners were just great for, you know, uh, helping the sand slide down the slope whenever it rained. Uh, so there have been liners around for 50 years. It's just uh, the liners have evolved from plastic to some sort of uh, fabric that, that would, would allow water to seep through to now uh, concrete or uh, gravel and you know encased in a uh, in an epoxy and that sort of thing all all sophisticated designs to to try and get water to permeate through the sand and under the sand layer without moving the sand itself uh, again architecture is all about drainage 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 is the number one rule and bunkers are a big big part of that it just makes me wonder how we made it this far in golf without bunker liners if they're so important <laughs> we've, we've been playing great golf courses we've temples of architecture that never had bunker liners but now we have to have them i guess that's maybe that's just the way the technology works we're in a new you know we have this new tool why not use it but i know there are some architects out there that i know that are re reluctant to add that into their their cost of doing business but it's something that most clubs want if they know that other clubs are doing it, other courses are doing it, if they see a value in it. Uh, it's, I guess it's a technology that, that works for them. I've got an answer, too, to the, uh, uh, an example of a successful project where minimal expenses were spent on a bunker liner. 
And that would be a Mark Logan at Creeka Park, the, the south course that uh, he, he built for Reese Jones. Uh, the Oakland Alameda Stadium, where the Oakland Raiders, when they were the Oakland Raiders, used to practice was right across the interstate highway from that project. And when they abandoned their practice field, Mark uh, volunteered to take their old sod, their old uh, artificial turf, and he lined all the bunkers with that artificial turf. It served the same purpose as a very expensive bunker liner, and he got it for free. Um, and if you go out there today, those bunkers uh, still hold the slopes. And um, if you dug deep enough, you'd find some some green uh, turf, uh, artificial turf, or or even a a, a little white paint on him for your I, mark. I know what he speaks of, uh, Derek. I, I saw the golf course. I saw the liners, and I thought that was an ingenious way to be uh, recyclable and reusable. And I thought, well, if it works, uh, he, has, he has done a great job, and Ron has, uh, has seen the final outcome. I have not seen the sand in the bunkers, but I saw the liners being placed. Uh, wonderful use of resources. Yeah, well, that brings up another question we had, and, and this is from Chris McNaught. And he asked, and Ron, Ron, I'll direct this one to you because it's, it ties into exactly to what we're talking about. Are stacked sod bunkers only acceptable on Lynx courses or Lynx style? And you're involved in the design and construction of the Carica Parks North course. And what you were just talking about using uh, old AstroTurf uh, field cut up, you're using those as stacked actually, sod actually, Actually, we're using Echo Bunker for for the sod walls, okay, which so, is a, so the, the old astroturf is the liner, product, but, the the yeah. the base liner. But yes, but it's an artificial uh, exactly. stacked stacked sod wall. But you're using them in in Alameda, California, not the Lynx course. What are your thoughts on on appropriateness of that style of bunker on varying properties and various sites? Well, obviously the 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 revetted bunker or stacked sod bunker uh, really evolved from the old country where courses were carved out of sand dunes and the if you d- dug a deep pot bunker the uh the, the wall of that bunker would be this sand and organic and it would collapse because uh, it was not uh it, it was not knit together within a lot of roots or anything like that so there was you know the mother you know, necessities the mother of invention and somebody invented the idea of well why don't we stack some bricks of sod up to support that and uh it's now become uh, you know, pretty commonplace if you go over to the old country to find that, and it uh, and it caught hold over here uh, originally on on some seaside uh, courses, and then it moved inland just for effect. And again, if if you're working on a sandy soil site, uh, it makes sense. You you could you know I could envision them being used in Pinehurst or at Sand Valley or stuff like that if 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 you chose to. Um, but it's also being used by a lot of architects to, to give that sort of links-like effect to, uh, to an inland course. And again, that, uh, to me, there's nothing wrong with that because uh, uh, I, I, I'm big on variety. Uh, I think variety you can give within a golf course or between golf courses, the better the game is. At Carica Park North, uh, you know, we've, they've struck in tons and tons and tons of, uh, 
of dune sand that's been excavated by uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit Tunnels. And that's being spread upon the site. So when you dig bunkers there, you've got the same problem of, of how do you make that, that uh, sand stable? You know, they talk a lot about the, the um, Australian sand belt. And Jim, you can talk better about this. There, the sand and organic is such that you can, you can slice through that, that layer. And um, for whatever reason, the, uh, the, the, the wall of sand does not collapse. It is very uh, sturdy and strong. And, and uh, um, so it has those very distinctive vertical edges at Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath that's hard to replicate elsewhere because the content of the, of the, um, of the soil just doesn't quite match that. And to speak of the, uh, I agree with Ron, and to speak of the, the revetted bunkers, <clears throat> Derek, we use revetted bunkers a few times at Old Mac uh, at the Bannon Dunes Resort. And we were very successful on the Strath bunker, the road hole bunker, the, the, the long at, at number six at Old Mac. We were successful using the sod wall uh, bunker, the stack bunker. We use fescue grasses. But unfortunately, that you have to have a maintenance of those bunkers as well. The revetted walls, they tend to collapse over time, especially with heavy play. So even a revetted bunker uh, needs maintenance. They all need maintenance. And, and that's the difficulty of deciding, as Ron said, the variety of the bunkers that you use. They all need some kind of maintenance and, and it's, it's everlasting. There's another question that had to do with, and Ron, you just brought this up a moment ago about moving a bunker, the revetted bunker inland. What do we think about making bunkers look natural on a on an inland or parkland site? There was a question about this. Um, particular good examples of, of good bunkering, and I, I struggle with this because, I mean, bunkers, depending on the site, unless you have like a, a heathlands type of natural sandy site, which we have in some parts of the U.S., but but most inland courses aren't bunkers just are not natural. That's not something that you would, you would come across if walking through a, a forest or a, or a, you know, a grove of, of hardwoods. So I've always kind of struggled with, you know, what, what kind of, what looks natural to what extent do you go? And, and I think just over time, we've, we've accepted the vernacular of golf and accepted that bunkers on an inland site are just part of the game, but they don't necessarily fit in the landscape. Are, are, can you think of, what are some of your, so what are some of the golf courses that, that achieve a, a great natural looking inland bunker that's not on a sandy site? Somebody brought up in, in the Twitter thread, brought up San Francisco Golf Club as being as an example of, of really nice inland bunkering style. That seemed to fit. Yeah, but San sand. Francisco was a, was one big sand at one time, so that's not a good example. I mean, you can go up there and you can dig down and you can hit sand. Um, what you're talking about is a course in the mountains, or uh, you know, a, a course on the well, even the prairie can be sand sand based. But um, clay soils that you find, uh, you know, it, Chicago is a good example. That's Chicago is is a lot of it's dead flat. And so you're trying to add character to a golf course. that's on dead flat property. How do you do that? Well, you start, uh, one of the ways you add character is to, is to try and build some sort of bunkers. Um, I think we need to point out there that there's a difference between the academic discussion of, of bunker styles and the reality that's out there. There, you know, the reality is that certain architects have a certain bunker style that they're going to stamp in. And, um, 
on their projects. Uh, uh, you, you'll find, and Jim can tell you too, that there are certain clubs that want a certain style of bunker, either because the superintendent wants something that's maintainable without a lot of hand maintenance, or um, you know, clubs want want uh, bunkers that are easy to step into and get out of, as well as hit out of, or they want a, a, a certain color of sand. They want you know a natural sand, or they want a bright white sand. Bright white sand is is although bright white sand can be found in Arkansas and Ohio and places that you wouldn't think of it, it it's not common to say, for instance, the Kansas city area, but you don't do a course in Kansas city anymore without doing bright white sand because the competition's got it. And so you're going to do it too, because um, club members, if, if you want to attract club members, you've got to, you've got to attract, you've got to have the most attractive product that you possibly can. So the reality of this is, is uh, it, it's, it's I don't want to say site specific, but it's it's something that over the years we've just all accepted that that a golf course with bunkers we expect sand bunkers to be there and and the size and shape and look and all that um, is really dependent on the architect uh, and 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 the people who are going to maintain them. Uh, even the best architects have sometimes done these fancy bunkers that five years later, the superintendent has reworked to make them easier to, um, to mechanically maintain so that there's not hand maintenance. Jim, jump in, Jim. Yeah, Jim, I'll, let me get back to the actual question. So, so this will give us some, maybe a little more focus than I, I gave Ron. Uh, this is from Zane Ellis. And he actually said, what's the best example of really good, uh, either construction, natural feel, and placement of bunkering on a Parkland-like setting that that you've seen in the states. No inland dune courses. And and just going back to my thoughts, like when you, when I see naturalistic bunkering with the you know the the, the fescue edges and the the eroded uh, look around the edges, and it's in a Parkland setting, it doesn't seem natural to me. It's a natural look, but it doesn't seem to fit the setting. I'd almost prefer to see you know, the, the Rainer style or something that, that is almost artificial and, and clearly imposed upon the site rather than, uh, you know, trying to invoke a, an image of naturalism. But, but Jim, to the, to the question, what, what jumps to mind for you as a really good example of, of Parkland style bunkering? Uh, for sure. William Flynn in Philadelphia, name the golf course, take a William Flynn in Philadelphia and the, the bunkers are pleasurable uh, they they fit the landscape. They're not uh, overly uh, large in their presentation, uh, and uh, not so severe. But you know, every time I think of a walk in Marion and 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 playing some of the Flynn courses in Philadelphia, the course I restored in Chicago, the Glenview Club William Flynn design, the bunkers are subtle. They're they're uh, uh, some people say attractive. They got a slight sand flash to them. They're not overly expensive to maintain. They fit the landscape. But on the contrary, but on the contrary, uh, bunkers that C.H. Uh, Ellison did, who worked for Colt and started his business in England, came to America, and then on to Japan, uh, some of the Ellison golf courses in the Chicago area with big monster flashes of sand, 8, 10, 12 feet high in the air, those although very imposing, uh, very difficult to maintain on, on the heavy soils that, that Ron describes in the Chicago area. So uh, Flynn, way, uh, much more attractive, easier to maintain, 
uh, Allison, uh, such as the golf course at the Bobolin Club in Chicago, higher flash, heavy soils, sand wants to fall down off the slope, much more difficult to maintain. So uh, in, in my mind, uh, a little more subtle like Flynn did in Philadelphia would certainly be attractive type of bunker uh, in on the inland courses. Ron may agree or disagree. Oh, I, I agree and disagree. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure that the, the bunkering at either Bobolink or North Shore, um, that was Allison's original intent. To me, those have been reworked by so many Chicago architects. I, I'm, I've never really researched enough to, to know whether those were Allison originals. I would agree with you that there are certainly very different and very distinctive bunkers. But again, that's that's the personality of those golf courses. Um, you know, Bobolink always prided itself on on being the the best maintained course in the Chicago market, if not the United States. And that when I was growing up, it was like that. And part of that, I think, was because they were one of the first courses to have bent fairways and they're one of the first courses to use mechanical rakes. And you got in and, and whipped those mechanical rakes around those great big clamshell bunkers. Um, and again, it's the evolution of these things that uh, we I like the variety. I, I would think that, you know, it would be bad for golf if we said there should be a certain style of bunker. There is no one style fits all. Um, and and uh, uh, again, I, I find that uh, the more I study, the, the, the more tickled I get when I see an architect like Tillinghast who used very different bunker styles in different settings. And that's why I've always admired Tillinghast as one of the most versatile architects because he was very site-specific about what sort of bunker style he did. That brings us up to the current age. This is, was touched on in a few of these Twitter questions, and it's something that, that comes up in conversation quite a bit, is right now we're in this era where a lot of the, the sites are so natural. They're, they're really good sites, at least at the, at the top end, the new sites that are being developed. They really lend themselves to the naturalistic style, the the, the Doak and Corin Crenshaw and Gil Hans style with their, the, and the shapers that they use. They look er eroded and weathered and, and they, they fit in the blowout style. But is that becoming too common? It seems like other designers who have worked or renovated projects on sites that aren't dunesy and sandy also try to bring that, that style, that bunker edge, that look into their projects no matter where they are. And this is not to say it's all the same. There are uh, differences and people do it slightly differently, but I've recently been. Putting, no, it is all the same. <laughs> well, it is all I've been the putting same. together this presentation, and I've got a, you know like a, hundreds of pictures I'm looking at, and when you line them all up of these golf courses that have been built over the last twenty years, they, I mean they all really start to bleed into each other and look the same. Have we gotten yeah. too far off in this on this one uh, track? This is this, this is the same thing that happened fifty years ago. You know, the the, the Trent Jones Dick Wilson style was was in vogue and therefore a lot of young architects would try and replicate that as sort of thing. Pete Dye made his reputation by counterposing, you know, uh, 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 doing a counterattack. He, he, whatever Trent Jones did, Pete would do the opposite. And um, everybody followed him. And then Sorry, everybody followed bunkers. him for a while. So, so now who's the hot architect, Gil Hans, Corn uh, Crenshaw, you're going to copy their style. You're going to try and do that, that sort of, uh, 
uh, as you call it, naturalistic. Uh, Reese Jones, a little more uh, contemptuous, he calls it collapsible bunkers. But, uh, <laughs> you know, the, um, the, 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 if you can afford that set of bunkers, it's, it's, it's a great look, but it's not for everyone. It's most clubs that have a, a strict maintenance budget. And let me tell you, right now, maintenance budgets are getting tighter all the time because fuel costs, labor costs, water costs are all getting up, uh, growing uh, larger and larger. Uh, there isn't much room for, for um, frills. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the look is great. It looks great in, in magazines. It looks great on videos. Um, I just don't know, you know, the older I get, the less I like to play those sort of bunkers. Uh, and, and, and it, you know, here I am a purist saying, you know, I want, I want uniformity. No, I, I, I still like the fact that, that, that if I have a bunker lie, that's a little, anything but flat, I think it's, it's, it's more fun to play, but, um, I don't need 40 acres of sand. Uh, I don't want to play a course with 40 acres of exposed sand. We'll jump back onto that because that's another thing that, that we need to address. But Jim, right now we see a lot of the naturalistic style being built. And then all, the other type we see a lot is, is the, you know, the, the old, you know, Rainer style, angular, Langford style, angular. So there seems to be these two camps it, it, from my observation of what's being built. Do you see an opportunity or, or a, a chance that we'll get back at some point into uh, some more curve-edged bunkering, you know, something that was more popular in the in the nineteen sixties, that RTJ style, even the Reese Jones style, you know, something that's that's not either uh, a direct reference to the nineteen twenties or a direct reference to a blowout bunker. Is there an opportunity there to do something like Jim Ang was doing twenty years ago? Well, you know, Ron is right. Eric, your observation of golf courses and in the last 20 years of the bunkers all looking uh, the same. The 60s and 70s for me was the era of jigsaw bunkers, where it looked like a bunch of jigsaw puzzle pieces were going to fit together uh, as they were carved out in, on the landscapes. Uh, I, I did not, I never have liked the jigsaw type look. I just thought that they were unnatural. For me, for me, I have to say that I have to always go back to what McKenzie, unfortunately, what McKenzie said, and that was that you make them as natural as you can. Yet, when you go to Posse Tempo, those bunkers aren't that natural. They're very formulaic. Uh, they have a purpose in how they were laid out. But as natural as you can make them. And I think the era of the last 20 years was to to present these bunkers as a more natural looking, like they were just ripped and teared out of the landscape. And then the sand was added and, and the fescue grasses were, were sown around them. So I don't mind the natural look. I never liked the jigsaw look of the 60s and 70s because I thought they were not in the spirit of Mackenzie's natural looking bunkers. But what's the next era of, of bunker design? I don't know that, there, that, that I can call it out right now, but I do know that, as Ron said, that, that the cost to upkeep these bunkers leads me to believe that there will be 
six or seven or 10 or 11 bunkers being built on golf courses with much more imagination used in the other undulation of the ground instead of the bunkers because of uh, the cost of the bunkers, the bunker sand, the cost to maintain them, the cost to get the sand back up after a rain event. So I think the novelty or the direction may be less bunkers, six or seven, 12 or, or 13 bunkers that are in play and not on the peripheral and, and, and very impactful uh, and not as, uh, and not 200 as you described or 150 as, as you count on some golf courses. Arnold Palmer was famous for building a lot of bunkers uh, uh, a long way away from the green sites. And so I think uh, that era, I don't know if we'll go back to that. I think the era will be less bunkers and more use of ground contouring. Jim, you, you surprised me because I, 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 re, I, I recall speaking with you about McKenzie's bunkering at Valley Club of Montecito. Yes, I where know. They were jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> you said you could slide those bunkers from the left and right together and they would connect together. Those yes. were jigsaw bunkers. Yes. Uh, uh, Stanley Thompson did jigsaw pieces. And in yes. the next generation, we're just emulating that. The only difference was uh, they were now surrounded with uh, heavily maintained irrigated turf. So they, they became less, I guess you would say organic looking like it came out of a, out of a blowout dune. And then they were imposed upon a green landscape, but I always liked those jigsaw puzzles because I thought all of them were trying to emulate sand dunes, which is the origins of golf. And, um, uh, you know, more power to that. I, I, I think to me, that's always a timeless sort of style of bunkering that uh, that if if you used it today and I, I and I've been involved in the course where we're using it today, um, it, it still works. It, it you know it still pays homage to the origins of golf. Uh, it's it it's still to in my mind uh, looks appropriate and um, and I I can always see golf and certain architects trending back to that from time to time simply because uh, uh, it's, you know, for, for a great many people um, that's preferable to the big oval bunkers or the flat sand with the steep face of grass that you can't hardly see the sand from a distance or the huge expanses of sand um, that we see you know, the, the formalized ones from Pete Dyer or the un, informal ones from Corn Crunch. I can't argue with you, Ron. You got me on the jigsaw because I, <laughs> I, I do remember telling you that the jigsaws at the Valley Club and Pasachempo were an important part of the beauty and the strategy of, of architecture. But I guess what I mean by jigsaws are ones that are the style of bunker in the 60s and 70s that were just laid out uh, on the on the right and left of the landing areas uh, in the fairways, uh, and then laid out left and right of the greens, and they had no intertwining of them. Yeah, McKenzie's bunkers were intertwining. So yes, the jigsaw did work that way. I guess it, uh, I described the 60s and 70s of the bunkers that didn't intertwine, and that they were just yeah, kind of. And I would out. call those more cloverleaf bunkers. Thank than you. All right, we'll change it. 
Jared, put me on record. All right, now we're, we're really getting back. into the, the fine-tuning t- of these now. Well, this gets into placement, Jim, right? It gets into, you know, the, it's not necessarily the, the shape, although that could bother you, but but it's not necessarily the shape, but it's where they're placed. This Correct. Jake asked this question, why do some people feel that every bunker must have a strategic purpose? If golf architecture is an art form, then some bunkers should exist solely to make the composition more attractive, right? I don't buy into the economical bunkering philosophy unless the budget is tight. Responses. Well, I'll jump on I'll jump on that right away because uh, I'm going to I'm going to go right back to what I said. Uh, I that don't was the, like, that was the that was what we opened up this conversation with about That's right. Yep. That's right. I I the cloverleaf bunkers I I didn't care for but the big saw strategic bunkers of McKenzie I loved. And the art of McKenzie and Robert Hunter bunkers at the Valley Club where there are two or three bunkers I could name behind the 15th green at the Valley club behind the 18th green at the Valley club that nobody in their right mind would hit the ball up into that bunker. But the bunker was laid in there for strategy and layering. As you looked up the 18th fairway, or as you looked up to the 15th fairway, they were purposeful in their artwork, not in the strategy, not in the strategy, but in the artwork of Mackenzie's design, his camouflage, so to speak. And so I did like those and I don't mind those because they are artwork, but when they're just laid up there for, to, to just put in one more bunker, I never understood that. But when you stand at the, at, at Pasa Tempo and you look up the, the 15th fairway, or I'm sorry, the 13th fairway of Pasa Tempo, each one of those bunkers lines up with the other bunker and are very artful in their presentation. They don't allow you to feel the, the scale of how far you have to hit. Very strategic. And yes, yeah, I think they're important. Yeah, there are, there are lots of different purposes for bunkers. You know, there are some bunkers that we call buffer bunkers that, that are meant to, to catch a ball, keep it from going into the further the trouble. There are some that, 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 that are, Aesthetic bunkers like Jim is talking about. I'm, I'm thinking of the Meadow Club again. It's McKenzie, where yes. he has a bunker on one hole that that when you stand on a par three, it looks like the bunker's right behind the green, and it's actually uh, you know 500 yards away on another hole. Correct. Uh, those sort of things. It, it, it's a little bit of the deception. It's a little bit of the artwork. It's just all those sort of things. There are some bunkers that are that are meant to be beacons or targets. You know, you always hear of target bunkers and carry bunkers. The carry bunkers are, are, are sometimes strategic and they're sometimes sucker bets where uh, you, you, you shouldn't be carrying it at all. You know, Pete Dye always like, you know, the best angle of the green was, you know, for Pete Dye was you had to aim at his bunkers to get the best angle for the green. Well, there are architects saying, you don't want to go this direction. You want to play away from this carry bunker to have the best angle of the green. Cause if you carry the bunker, you're going to find another bunker in your way. You know, I've got you. Um, the, the if people are thinking, feeling that bunkers must have a strategic purpose, I think they're just not as yet as well educated as they should be in terms of golf architecture. It's as simple as that. And I think every bunker in most designs has a purpose. A four bunker, what I call a four bunker, a two hundred and ten off the tee that sets up the horizon line for the fairway or a bunker that's uh, uh, 230 yards uh, uh, right in the middle of the horizon line that you have to hit over. Uh, 
like at the hogs back at the National Golf Links of America that sets up the fairway. They have a purpose. And not a lot of people would add into them, but they do have a purpose for the setup, the strategy, uh, left or right. Uh, so they're not a waste. Uh, they are important. But I'll tell you, when, when people start to talk about reducing the number of bunkers on a golf course, I would, I would just hope that the committees and the superintendents and the presidents of clubs look at the purpose of the bunker. Uh, it, it, is it all-encompassing of the strategy of the setup of the fairway from the tee to the green? Just keep that in mind. Some of them are, are not very, but some of them were meant to be. See, Tillinghast back in the 1930s went around and filled all those bunkers in, calling them duffer headaches. And, and you know, a lot of these are being reestablished today, but the problem is we're moving tees around so that for the average golfer, uh, they don't, you know, they don't come into play, but then you, then, then that bunker is meant to be of importance only to the person playing from the back tees or from the old tees. That's true. Um, That's true. And, and I, you know, I can see why some of that is, is still desirable, as you say, to set up the shot, but I don't know how many golfers who are playing those tees really pay attention to those bunkers anymore. You know, I, I've been on record before saying, I don't think, you know, good golfers play strategic golf anymore. They just hit it as hard as they possibly can and find the <laughs> ball and hit it again. Um, you know, strategy be damned. But well, I, I agree with you, Ryan. Story from another I think day. that well, no, I, I think it's I think it's pertinent because I'm on record as saying that I, I that that as well that I think the majority of people golf is about trying to make solid contact with the ball and keeping it in play. And then there's another level that can somewhat do a better job and maybe aim a little bit, but even the best golfers don't have, you know, control with their driver. You know, there's a, there's a dispersion range. So it goes back to something, Ron, you were talking about earlier about uh, when we let off this conversation about uh, a naturalistic bunkering patterning of, of when you're designing a golf course versus a scientific. And there's something to be said about, you know, an arc on one hand, an architect can, dictate the strategy of a golf hole with bunker placement so that this would what jake's talking about is you know every bunker would have a purpose you know you're going to put one at the at the inside corner of a dog leg at at 310 yards now you're going to then bunker the outside left of a green you're creating the strategy of the hole you want to hug the bunker on the right to get that angle into the green everything has a purpose but very few if very few people play that way and even going back to uh, a conversation I had on the last podcast with Steve Smyers about elite players. They're not playing strategically. A lot of times they're just, they're, their one thing is to avoid that bunker. So it's, they're still trying to hit it away from trouble. They're not trying to hug uh, a bunker to g grab an angle unless they're desperate to do so in a tournament. But there's something more compelling about just kind of, to me, placing bunkers out there that don't have a purpose they'll they'll find their purpose as people play the hole as as uh, different ranges of skills maneuver their way across this hole over the years those bunkers will come into play at some point but the architect doesn't necessarily have to you know say this is for this shot it sets up this angle this defends this exact position because we know people are going to be going for it so i think there i think there's almost like a non-strategic way to bunker a golf course that would be just as compelling as seeing uh, classic golf courses where the architects have set out a blueprint for the strategy of how to play the golf course to ensure the most success derek you're absolutely right 
The problem is, again, this is academics versus reality. And the reality is, if you're designing a course or remodeling a course and you decide you want to put in these bunkers and the owner says, what's the purpose of that bunker? I'm spending $25,000 to build that bunker. What's it there for? And you say, well, it has no purpose. You're not going to get it built. You just start. <laughs> well, you I know? make up a purpose. I could come up with an <laughs> That's <for> right. That. <laughs> There's got to be some sort of you know, reason for it. Either it's aesthetics or it sets up a shot or it's a target or something. Very hard just to go out and 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 um, and really randomly place bunkers. And, and now you know, I've, I've talked about this before. I, I owned a course in Kansas for three years, uh, Chisholm Trail. It had no bunkers. And I decided to build 12 bunkers because it was natural sand and I could just dig through the, the topsoil and I hit eight feet of sand. So I just carved out these bunkers. And I, I had the conceit that I was going to have all the bunkers look like they were swept um, by the wind the prevailing wind in Kansas is in the summers, the south wind. So I had every bunker facing the southwest, regardless of the direction of the hole. I want to tell you, people thought I was nuts and they complained about it all the time because they hit over a horizon and damn if there wasn't a hidden bunker there. Um, I thought it was cool. Everybody, and I mean everybody who played <laughs> it, thought it was the stupidest thing in the world. And the only reason they got Bill is because I own the golf course. And I have to speak for this. Uh, this is a book that Ron's very familiar with. Golf Has Never Failed Me by Donald Roths. He says, and I quote, there's no such thing as a misplaced bunker. Regardless of where a bunker may be, it is the business of a player to avoid it. A leading golf architect in the golden age who grew up in Scotland and brought golf to America says, there's no such thing as a misplaced bunker. As an architect, I have to rely on the, the ideals of Ross, McKenzie, Tillinghast, you name it. When they brought the game to America, their, their job was to evoke the strategies of the golf where they came from and links lands of Scotland and Ireland. And there's no such thing as a misplaced bunker. I just think Ron had to be a, a, a more uh, uh, a communicative owner <laughs> and stood out there and defended every one of those 12 bunkers until he died. <laughs> well, the golf course died first, unfortunately. <laughs> Sorry about that. This next question, uh, as we get toward the end here, is kind of ties into uh, some of these themes we've been hitting on the last few minutes. Uh, this is from Detroit golfer, who uh, is also goes by the name of Sean Arbel. He says, is it reasonable to make bunkers more meaningful by reducing the total number by a considerable amount, but make them harsher and more aggressively located? If bunkers were treated like water hazards in terms of penalty drops, would Arkies create harsher bunkers? So th this question, I like it because it, it talks about reducing bunkers, which you both have, have said. And I sense that there's some there's a lot of heat behind this idea of uh, bunkerless golf courses or courses with, with much fewer bunkers. We've seen some examples recently of this. And now it's, it, it, it almost to me seems like the, the, the soup du jour. Now everybody wants to try to, their hand at making a, a golf course with what Ron was doing years ago with 12 bunkers or making no bunkers at all. Andrew Green built... Um, the preserve at Eisenhower last year, renovated it, no bunkers there. We've seen other people try it before. So it, it, this question has to do with that, as well as bunker conditions, bunker depths. How do you make a bunker penal? Um, Ron, I'll, I'll throw this to you first. What, you know, 
would it be a reasonable approach to make bunkers even more penal, fewer but more penal, um, you know, for strategy and perhaps recapturing some lost spirit of, of a hazard being a true hazard? Yeah, if, if you want to punish golfers all the way around, sure. Um, again, if if bunkers are to have a strategic purpose, um, then they have to have a, have a commensurate sort of penalty to of them. If, if you're going to uh, make a golfer who tries to risk reward, carry a bunker to get a better position into the green and he drops into the bunker and he has to pitch out sideways every single time. Uh, he's never going to try that risk. So you've deferred to the purpose of that bunker. To me, the bunker has to be of a certain depth where it's just tempting enough for them to, to try and carry it over. And if they're in the bunker, they still think they can reach the green if they hit a good shot. And, you know, it's like a half stroke penalty. Sometimes half the time you're going to reach the green, half the time you're not. Um, to me, those are the kind of hazards that you're still willing to try the risk. Uh, the really harsh, deep ones, uh, you know, you're going you're to play away from every single time unless you're a masochist. Um, I, I, I've, as I study older architecture, I'm astonished at how shallow the bunkers were. But then I realized, I remember, you know, it, it, until 32, when they invented the sandwich, you were hitting just a regular iron out of greenside bunkers and, uh, and, and fairway bunkers were, you know, with, with hickory shaft clubs and that sort of thing were, were you, you were hardly ever going to reach the green unless you bounced and rolled on from a, from a fairway bunker. Um, I kind of like varying the depths of bunkers on a golf course. Again, it's that variety aspect. Now my friend, Jeff Brower has written his, his, his rule of thumb is a bunker can be a foot deep for the number of club that you're using. So if you're using a one iron, it ought to be a foot deep <laughs> and a four iron ought to be four feet deep and a nine iron. You can make it nine feet deep. Well, that's, that, that, sure that's, about a, that. that's a rule of thumb that I don't <laughs> think anybody really practices, but, but the idea behind it is, is, is sensible is that the whole idea is you shouldn't uniformly have all the bunkers certain depth. That's my complaint with Augusta national right now with all that Tom Fazio has done. Every bunker seems to be the same depth. Uh, Reese Jones did the same thing when he remodeled Coghill. My big criticism on that was that you go there and every single greenside and fairway bunker was shoulder deep. Uh, and for a public golf course, that was just torture. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's bunkering is such an individual art and it's, 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 you know, what you like, Derek, I may not like, and what I like Jim would say, Oh, those are horrible looking, uh, clover leaves. Clover leaf bunkers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but there, you know, we should just understand that that's what makes this game so great is that, uh, there are some courses that look different than other courses and play different than other courses. And by God, I hope that never changes. This gets, this question really gets back to kind of the way that, that golfers have changed over the decades. You know, when, you know, in the 19 teens and, and 20s, there, uh, you had a, a smaller demographic, a range of people who played golf in general, and especially like at, at the, at the club level. 
and I think there was more of a, a sporting attitude, especially toward hazards. You know, if you're playing match play, some fella gets in, into the, a really deep bunker, can't get out, has to come out sideways. That was just accepted as part of the game. And as, as time has gone on, the concept of fairness and, re, and recovery have become more important. And we've really lost our taste as a golfing culture of just getting brutally penalized for mishitting a shot or finding yourself in a really dangerous uh, sand pit. Um, Jim, this question kind of gets at that: Is have we lost that that spirit? Is it is it a positive development? Is there room in the game for truly truly penal bunkers as, as hazards anymore? Well, let me go back to the premise of the bunker, and I quote: Most golfers have an entirely erroneous view of the real object of the hazard. The majority of them simply look upon hazards as a means of punishing a bad shot when their real object is to make the game more interesting. Alistair McKenzie. That's the premise of a bunker, in my opinion, is to make the object of the game more interesting so that you are like most keen golfers. They are looking for the chance to have a spirit of adventure like Bernard Darwin describes. That's the purpose of the bunkers the spirit of adventure, the chance to uh, make the game more interesting uh, with the variety that Ron Witten talks about, different depths, different locations, different styles. We don't want them all to look the same. We don't want every bunker to look like a rip and tear bunker or a cloverleaf or a jigsaw or uh, angular like Rainer and, 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 and so on and so forth. We want the variety, the spice of life like like people. And so that's the basis for the bunker. But I think what started this whole thing was that people started to attach the rules that they thought were important to the bunker. Playability. And most importantly, Ron could agree or disagree. They want a predictable outcome when they land in that bunker. They want it to be fair. And it's supposed to be more interesting it doesn't always have to be fair and predictable. And that's the basis for the bunkers. And that's how this, this article got started, is that we started to make our own rules of what, and we wanted to impose our own style of golf architecture and how we play the game. We're trying to make the game more interesting. We're trying to invoke the spirit of adventure with variety. And so how do we do that? We create bunkers. Nobody hits it behind a tree on a golf course and says, oh, you got to cut down this tree. I can't make my, I can't advance my ball to the green. Or nobody hits it in a pond in front of the 12th hole Augusta or the creek in front of the 12th hole Augusta and say, oh, you got to fill in this creek. I can't get my shot out of there. That's the pleasure and excitement of hazards. I just want to get back to that, the pleasure and excitement of hazards, the variety that they give us, the spirit of adventure. That's what I would like. I think there's something though that that what makes it interesting is is the is the threat of you know losing a shot or a half shot. You know, if there has to there has to be the threat of of punishment for one to try to strategize around a bunker. I think one of the I think one of the interesting calling cards of design over the last twenty years is the embrace of of recovery versus versus. Um, 
having to hack out of rough or, or be in the trees. You know, we've created a lot more space in golf now. And when people get out of position, there's much more encouragement for them to try to get back into position, whether it's out of a bunker or just creating width and getting back in, in play. But there's also something that's really fundamental to golf, in my opinion, about knowing there are certain places on a golf course you just cannot hit the ball. Obviously, <laughs> a water hazard is one, but even a bunker can represent that. I think I forget what year it was, but the year that the last uh, Open Championship that Ernie Elds won, when Adam Scott had a uh, four-shot lead with four to play, I think, and he gets up on the 18th tee, and right now I think he's I think he was tied by that point. He can make par and get into the playoff. And there's there's a bunker down the left side of the fairway that if you drive it into that bunker, you cannot advance the ball. You're coming out sideways. It's effectively a, a one-stroke penalty. And he knows that. He played there for four days and before. He knows you can't hit it in that bunker. And what does he do? He hits it in that bunker. And, you know, the threat is right there. But that creates that creates you know the, the, the drama, the excitement of standings on, on a tee and, and saying, I can't. This is where I can't go. So that this this is the context of this question is, um, you know, have we have we gotten away from that too much? Is is there room for that in golf? Does every golf course have to have you know this element of of recovery at all positions? And I guess it just goes back to you know the concept of variety. It it, it is good in some places, and maybe even an entire golf course predicated on twelve bunkers. The Ron's twelve bunkers, but they're all as really severe. I like the idea of, of having uh, that being an a option. Little, a little penal goes a long way, in my opinion. Uh, it, it, you know, if you're, if, if you're talking about, you know, there's another bunker on that same hole at uh, Royal St. Anne's uh, that you're talking about. And that's on the other side of the fairway. And that's where Greg Norman in yep. the playoff drove it in there. And he, I don't even think he finished the hole. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was whole kind of seven or something. Yeah. When he lost to Mal- or Mark Kakovecki, yep. he drove it in there and couldn't advance the ball and couldn't hit it out sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, uh, hey, yeah, the easiest thing in the world is build penal bunkers. But, you know, it, 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 at some point, uh, are you are you driving the golfers to some other course? I th- I think the key is use that uh, very, very discerningly, uh, you know, the devil's asshole bunker. It's at Pine Valley is so distinctive because there isn't another bunker like that anywhere on the course. If there were five of those on that course, um, it, it, it wouldn't be nearly as dramatic or as effective. One, one final uh, topic that we'll get into uh, before we check out here and it ties into this is a lot of the comments were about bunkers. It goes back to bunkers being hazards. You know, there's a, supposed to be a hazard. You know, they're not always supposed to be re- recoverable. At least they didn't used to be. But what about bunker maintenance, raking, smoothness? What what's the expectation? What's the reasonable expectation level? Could we go, could we? Where does golf stand when when there's even a, even if it's a harsh bunker, a deep bunker, but the sand is smooth? Jim, do you? Would you like to see us not rake bunkers or just, you know, do the foot smooth or go back to some other way that we maintain them? Well, I goes it goes back to the quote, the object of the hazard. And punishing a bad shot and making the game more interesting. 
I understand completely when you're going for the card and pencil mentality, that means that you're trying to shoot the best score that you ever had that day, that week, that month, that year. And you're on that path and you're five under or two under or five over, whatever your score is, and your ball lands in a footprint or your ball lands in, in, in a bunker that has not been prepared or prepped or raked. I has to go back to the, to the first rule of golf, play it as it lies. And I know that people don't want to hear that. I know that people don't want to say, what do you mean play it as it lies? The guy in front of me didn't rake the bunker and I landed in his footprint. Why should I be penalized for that? Well, that is the game of golf. And do we have to maintain and do we have to rake bunkers after every uh, foursome goes through the golf course so that everybody's lie is the same? I don't think so. And do we have to have bunker rakes sprinkled all the way around the, the bunker so that we make sure that, that it's raked and prepped for the next foursome that comes through? I don't think so. I think you play it as it lies. And yes, there's a courtesy, you know, smooth out your, your, your bunker shot or, or smooth out your footprint. But to, to demand that a bunker has to be kept, kept pristine, that a hazard has to be kept pristine so that, that you don't have the, the chance to, to flub it or chunk it or, or, or uh, re-hit it back into the bunker, I just think that's the spirit of golf. And, and sometimes you're going to get that and sometimes you're not. And I just don't think that we should spend enormous amounts of money prepping these bunkers so that everybody, no matter whether they tee off at 6.40 in the morning or they tee off at 5.30 at night, should have the same experience. It just, the golf course evolves through the day and sometimes you're just going to have that bad lie and maybe tomorrow it will be better. I hope that makes sense to everybody. Yeah, I just said that clubs rake bunkers routinely uh, mainly just to keep vegetation from growing in it, especially if there's any sort of organic in the sand at all, you know, cause you're going to get grass clippings. You're going to get uh, uh, weed uh, seeds and that kind of stuff. So you stir up the, 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 the sand periodically to, to cut down on that. Sometimes you get algae growing on it. You want to get that up. Uh, but routinely uh, raking bunkers and, and by the way, Pine Valley does that even. Um, and and hand raking the bunker after every shot are two different things entirely. Uh, the one is a, a routine maintenance for, for maintenance purposes. The other is to give uniformity to what's a hazard. And there's nothing more grating to me than that term uniform bunkers. And I hear it all the time. Oh, I love that course because the bunkers are all uniform. I get a perfect lie in every bunker. Well, to me, those aren't good hazards. Uh, I agree with Jim. It, it, you, you ought to have to face an awkward lie. Uh, I'm building some bunkers with, with um, awkward stances with them. Then, even though they're raked, you 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 got side hill, uphill, downhill lies, um, and you know they aren't that deep, but they're still penal in that somebody has to be creative uh, to to play a bunker shot out of that, which is to me part of the game. I was surprised. I went to Pine Valley for the first time this year, and I was surprised at how maintained 
the waste areas were. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I grew up reading about Pine Valley and, and, you know, if you went in Hell's Half Acre or any, any of these other, you know, ferocious hazards, you, you could be in a bush, you know, you could be in a footprint, you could be, you know, it was a, it was going to be tough to get out. And I, that wasn't my experience there. I thought it was very maintained and it, and it, I was a little disappointed to find the golf course that way. Prairie Dunes used to have, you know, hundreds of yucca plants growing out of its bunkers. And then the USGA came in and for the senior open and the women's open made them remove, move both of them, most of them. And to this day and age, uh, you go there now and there's a token um, yucca plant in a back corner of a bunker. And that's about it. And to me, it was, it was much more interesting. Uh, I, I can remember having a ball actually sitting on the, uh, uh, on the bunker, on the, I'm sorry, the leaves of a yucca plant itself above the sand, uh, which was a good question. You know, it, am I inside the bunker or am I out of the bunker? <laughs> Ron, has over the last year, you've, you've spent more time on the design side of the business than you haven't been able to in the past. Have, have your views on hazards changed? You know, you, I mean, you, you're yes. just in this, in the last hour, I'm, I'm sensing a level of pragmatism that I, I wouldn't, as far as like, who's going to be playing the golf course and, and, and economics of the golf course that I might not have expected from you before. Yeah. And, 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 you know, as I said, there, there's the academic side and there's the, the reality of things. And, and, um, uh, when you're, when you're building a course or rebuilding a course, uh, and you're spending other people's money doing it, everything counts. Every decision counts. And the bunkers are big ticket items in this day and age. Uh, if we want to add bunkers, fairway bunkers that didn't exist, um, you got to have pretty doggone good reasons um, besides, oh, well, this hole needs a bunker. You know, there, there has to be, and it has to be placed properly. So you got a lot of people uh, involved in saying it has to be this distance. No, it should be this distance. We want it to look natural and on an upslope, but that's too close to the T, that sort of thing. Can we extend the T back? That sort of thing. Um, all that comes into play so that, you know, there's, there's, um, there's a lot more reasons for each bunker. Jim will tell you the same thing. There's a lot more reasons to go into why a bunker gets built or doesn't get built than simply, um, the strategy of a whole. I'm sure that was always the case to, to some degree, uh, but you know, I, I'm glad that it seems like in many points in, in golf design's history that, you know, budget wasn't maybe as big of a concern because we'd have maybe less interesting golf courses. Uh, if, you know, <laughs> if there'd been a, a, a tighter budget at Hollywood, that golf course probably wouldn't be as cool as it is now. And Derek, I have to, as a as a person who has read and and studied golden age designs, and and studied the links lands of Scotland and Ireland, and studied the great golf courses of the United States, I know Ron Witten has seen more golf courses than me, but I still have to evoke the spirit of adventure. That uh, no lie is uh, is insurmountable, but the pleasures of when you come. When you when you hit that heroic shot, or or you you you're in that bad lie in the bunker, and it comes out and lands close to the pin, that's the success that you you thrive for, that you live for for the next day. And so I'll, I will continue to to look at bunkers 
as an integral part of the design and strategy. I will continue to look at bunkers as, as the spirit of adventure. And, and I hope that uh, the variety doesn't change. And I hope that committees don't, as I say, dumb them down so that they're fair. Uh, they have to be rewarding. The game, uh, and, and when, you, when you beat your partner in match play, the game is, is a little bit more fun that day. And you hit shots that you hadn't hit before. And, and that's a, a, a reason for success. And that's what I want to keep building bunkers until I no longer do them, until I'm no longer involved in restorations. The spirit of adventure, what the hazard was, to reward uh, well-placed shots. Uh, I, again, Ron Witten says sometimes golfers don't look at it that way. They're like, well, you're just making the golf course harder. I'm just trying to make it more fun. Uh, and people laugh when I say that. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, a golf course with, with without the threat of a hazard or, or the threat of penalty is, is not going to be rewarding to play for most people day to day. And bunkers are one area where an architect can really have the greatest amount of influence. I, I would say, you know, bunkers and, and putting services where an architect can have the biggest influence uh, on the effect of a round of golf and how a person experiences the golf course and how it affects their, their score and their matches. <laughs> I, that's why I'm not sure I, I love the idea of, of courses with, with fewer bunkers. Uh, it would have to be a really, really special piece of land for, I think, that to, to work on a regular basis. And Colt said that we are going to be adverse to criticism. And his hope was that in the, in, in the end, that his lasting record of his craft and the love of his work will be everlasting. And that's all you could ask for. Ron, any final thoughts? Uh, it, I, I'm interested to see these bunkerless courses. I played one on the Robert Trent Jones Trail 25 or 30 years ago. Yeah, I've been there. Uh, I, I have not played Sheep Ranch. I've not played Eisenhower since it was redone. Uh, I know there's a couple out, uh, a couple more courses uh, planned out there that, that are bunkerless. I, I can tell you that you know, we did a bunkerless hole at Aaron Hills, and and that's the least popular hole on that course, I think, the 17th hole, where everybody, including Mike Hurdson, says, you know what this hole needs? It needs a bunker. Um, there is just a – it's human nature. You expect golf to involve, uh, involve sand hazards, sand bunkers. And uh, so to have an entire 18 without them, uh, to me, is a – is a real challenge to hold and, and, and maintain the golfer's attention and interest and its sense of adventure for 18 holes. Um, if there are no sand bunkers on it entirely, I, I, I haven't given up on the idea, but I, I, I need to see him first. Right. I, and I have played, I have played Bill and Ben's design, the bunkerless course at Bannon Dunes. And I loved it. I thought that the greens were compelling. I thought that the wind was challenging. I thought the walk and the routing was fun. And I didn't feel that I, I missed something wrong by not having a bunker. Would I want to play 17,000 golf courses with no bunkers? No. But the variety that, that the Sheep Ranch gave me, the walk, the feel of the land undulations, the cool greens, more than made up for the, the, the sense that the, – the, there was no hazards that I had to hit out of. Uh, Do you think if it had been the first course built at Bannon rather than the sixth course, that Bannon would be as popular today? 
<laughs> you know the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> he tried to set me up, Derek. He, <laughs> he thought he thought I was gonna fall into that. And you're gonna trap. walk right into that one. <laughs> oh yeah. He thought I he thought I had a double wide door. No, Ron, <laughs> it was not gonna be as successful. I totally agree with you that 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 there's a sense that the the look and the presentation and the beauty of a bunker and, and its appeal of the sand to the green turf and, and the ocean background at Bannon Dune Dunes, David Kidd's first golf course, is 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 everything it's supposed to be. I think that but, just says says that, you know, if you couldn't make a bunkerless course work on that site and have it, you know, be enough to drive traffic, then I, I think it's a novelty that uh, it's, it's probably a, a, going to be a passing phase. I mean, if but, you can't make the sheep ranch property work and attract people there with no bunkers, then it's not going to be a lasting concept. And that's fair. That's fair. But, but at the end of the day, when I'm done with sheep ranch, I could go back to, uh, to abandoned dunes or Pacific dunes or old Mac or trails or, or whatever other options they're giving me. So the bunkerless golf course, the sheep ranch, I think I didn't miss it, Ron. I don't think you will because you'll find that the greens and the ground contours did everything for you. But yeah. then tomorrow you could go right back to the bunkers at Bandon Pacific, Old Mac and Trails. And I'll, I'll go on record, Ron, and say that I think the 17th at Aaron Hills is a great hole. I, I don't think it needs a bunker, so if – Thanks. Can, checks in the mail. <laughs> if you need anybody to, yeah, uh, advocate on your side of that, there it is. Well, this has been a good talk, good talk, guys. Obviously, bunkering is a uh, highly debatable issue. Uh, there's a lot to cover in it. It's complex, and we probably didn't do a very good job or <laughs> complete job of getting to everybody's questions or every angle of this issue. But uh, it, I think it was enjoyable discussion. Thanks for inviting me, Ron. Great to be with you, Jim. Great to be with you, too. Derek, you know that all these conversations could go on forever. Thank you, Ron, for your, your opinions. And, and Derek, thank you for, for reliving this with me. Uh, it's the spirit of adventure. We need bunkers, but uh, variety is, is what, also what we need. I concur with that. We'll, we'll leave it on that thought. Variety is what we need. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that discussion and that it made you think or triggered some reaction. To pick up on that last theme of bunkerless courses, I agree with Jim that Sheep Ranch is effective and entertaining without bunkers. I would also add that while there are no sand bunkers there, what do exist are the same type of hollows with high back faces of fescue grass, many of which are banked into greens and other landforms that would otherwise be bunkers. So they look and function like traditional bunkers, but without the sand. Bill Corr thought the site was too windy to maintain sand bunkers, so the bottoms are just grass cut at a rough height. In all other respects, though, they resemble bunkers, but obviously are much easier for the majority of golfers to play out of. But that in itself is an interesting twist that's worth looking further into. A more intriguing concept is the course with no bunkers at all, no grass hollows, no grass cutouts, just a field of rolling turf that challenges golfers with short grass and contour in different stances. In fact, Jim and I discussed this concept in our very first salon with Don Mahaffey. McKinsey's original plan for the Jockey Club in Argentina was just this, a vast, continuously flowing playing surface with holes that rippled across a series of low ridges that he and his crew created. The owner, however, wanted bunkers, so some were added. But my feeling is that right now, to date, 
This idea hasn't been accomplished or fully realized to its maximum potential, and it's something that's stimulating the imagination of many architects. It might be one of the last real novel ideas in design that hasn't been done yet at a high level, just as the reversible course hadn't been done in a brilliant way until Dan Hickson and Tom Doak built Sylvie's Valley Ranch and the Loop at Four Dunes, respectively. My guess is that some developers soon will give an architect a shot to see if a bunkerless course can be built in a compelling way over the course of 18 holes, or if ground contour alone can pose the same tasty challenges on a day-to-day basis that a properly bunkered course can. My second guess is that it can be and will be, but that there's only room in the market for a few courses like that. And if it's done too often, the products will only get worse and worse, which is the case with any novel idea in any field. Rather, as both Ron and Jim explained, because bunkers are expensive to build and maintain, because resources in so many places may become lean and weather patterns are intensifying, there's likely to be a movement toward building fewer bunkers or removing bunkers that have less impact. Please tell your friends and loved ones about this podcast. Share it on social media. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at FeedTheBall. And be sure to read Golf Digest and check out golfdigest.com for my latest writing. Thanks for joining us in the salon. Adios. Adios.